0: The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, brought to you by Narconon Suncoast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. This is episode number 118, and I am joined today by my illustrious co-host.
1: Jason Good. I like the word illustrious.
0: Absolutely. I I
1: liked it. I'm so (laughs) glad
0: you're in the studio. I always say things about you when you're not here, but it's all good. Don't worry.
1: Oh, very nice. (laughs) It's it's weeks like this when it's like this hot in Florida makes me second guess the fact I moved here. Uh, Yes. (laughs) It's... uh. It, it's it's insane, but I also obviously think of the addicts that are homeless out there, and it came and it came into my universe, so to speak, last week when I was walking into my apartment on Sunday. As I left my apartment, it looked like someone had this person had made it into the lobby area, and there there were they were on opioids. Like I mean, you look at them and, and no, and she was sitting on the couch, and I didn't really think too much of it, and we went out, and six hours later. Uh, my girlfriend and I came back, and this girl is passed out on the couch. And of course, I'm like, Ma'am, are you okay? Like, I woke her up, and she like, popped up, so she was responsive. Um, but she was like drooling on herself, I and mean, you could tell she was very, very, very heavily intoxicated on opioids or some sedative, right? And so I went upstairs and then I thought about it. I came back downstairs, and she was passed out again. I woke her up again. And I said, Hey, are you okay? And she's like, you know, and slurred words was like, I'm just waiting on someone, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking in my head, she's trying to get out of the heat. Right. You know. Right. It's so hot outside. Yeah. She obviously has nowhere to go. You look at her and she's dirty and you know she doesn't really have a place to go. Right. And so I I ended up calling paramedics to come make sure she's okay. Yeah. Because my conscience goes, if I don't call and then something really bad happens, I don't have Narcan on me and she's responsive so I'm not going to give someone some response that's responsive Narcan. Right. Um, so I had her checked out and Um, I I don't know if they took her or not, but it was just like, it kind of reminds me that, you know, I'm extraordinarily lucky Mm -hmm. to go from where I was to where I am now, because that girl passed out on the couch, you know, strung out on opioids, having no place to go and trying to get out of the heat. Like I've done that. I I, I understand the way that feels. It could have been you. It was me at one point. And it could still have been me if I didn't find what I found that got my life better. And so it's interesting that stuff will just show up for me. I'm just like, you know, guys. Just like sometimes the uh, the drug crisis out there just, like smacks you in the face. I mean, right. and then across the street there was an overdose at the laundromat.
0: Oh my god!
1: And it's just like, ugh, what do we got to do? Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, it's all about like societally like an estimation of effort, like how much like effort do we have to put into this thing to handle the opioid crisis? Well, if you have look at it, and I'm not saying this to be like the dark cloud around on the parade, but look at all the effort that's been put in, like all the work that's been put into handling the crisis. Look at all the work that's been put into rehabs and detoxes and all sorts of stuff and, and you know, government funding and this and that and support groups and, and, and all that has only got us to where we are. Right. So if you think about it, that took a lot of effort, but it's going to take far more to actually get it to a point where it's handled or handling in a more positive direction. But it's not all bad out there. I mean, no. there's, the good part is working in rehab, I also get to see success stories. I think I get to see people come in one way and leave the opposite way. You know what I mean? I get to That's see right. people you know completely change their lives around. And there's so much success out there, but I feel like a lot of the public pays so much attention to the negative stories and the mass overdoses and the drug busts and and the the death rate and and all that. And it's like, okay, fine, we can focus on that, but why not flip it around and look at what's positive? Exactly. I'm a silver linings kind of person. I like to look at silver linings and everything. So for the thousands of addicts that have died... There's a lot of acts that haven't. There's
0: probably a hundred thousand that haven't.
1: But you know, I would we, don't, say. we don't talk about it.
0: Well no, we talk, we about, talk about it. We talk about it. I mean we
1: sorry, collectively, societally, our, our attention's on the problem instead of the actual good things that are coming out of all of it.
0: That's because the media are merchants of chaos and they're just trying to keep us upset about it on a regular basis. And they don't report the good news and they don't report rehabs such as Narcanon Suncoast and others who actually produce you know, sober, sober adults and sober kids so, sober and happy people. sober people, sober and happy people. And they don't report on that because they don't think that that's news. So that's right.
1: Yeah, I had, I, we have a guy that's volunteering for us right now and he came into my area uh, and said, hey, I, I, I want to help out a little bit. And he said, what can I do? I said, write me an article. I write lots of blogs. I mean, people hear my voice all the time. <laughs> Why don't I get another voice, right? And so I said, write me a blog. He's like, well, what do you want it on? I said, you pick. You know, you pick a topic involving addiction, write about it, see what comes out. And so like an hour later, I went back in, he had written this blog and I was like, okay, let's see what you got. And I read it, my my jaw hit the floor because I said, I want you to talk about anything you want, just pick it. This guy picked the topic of denial in addicts. It's funny as we had talked about that. Yes. About whether denial actually exists. This guy just picks it out of nowhere. And he's like, I want to talk about addicts in denial. He's like, and he wrote this, like, I was like an 800 word blog. It's like far... (laughs) far more, far longer than anything I write. And I think he just had a flow of consciousness because in it, he was talking about the whole time I was using the fact I've done 11 treatment programs and I've done more detoxes that I can possibly count the whole time I was using and going into treatment with the idea that I'm not going to get clean, but I'm going to lower my tolerance so I can go back out and have like a kind of an easy to maintain addiction or or I get my family off and back or this or that. He was like, I was never in denial that what I was doing was a problem. I just had to keep everyone else off my back and away from me. And it was like, oh. Okay. So I, my theory wasn't wrong.
0: <laughs> exactly. Because
1: I remember I, I I kind of backed it. I kind of started with like, this is just a theory of mine. And this kid just wrote this exactly, almost verbatim, what I said. I was like, isn't that interesting? And um, I also didn't realize this guy had done so many treatment centers. 11 full treatment programs. Wow. And then more detoxes then you can, you know, wh- you want more than you'd want to count, at least for one person. And it was just like, wow. Okay. And so I thought, I felt strangely validated by that. Okay. So I'm right. There's no, ad- so anyone listening, if you have an addict in your family, you're an addict. They're not really actually in denial. And I have that verified independently right. uh, from one of the people that volunteers at Narcanon is that. Denial doesn't exist. It's not a thing. Anyone that's shooting up or smoking crack or doing whatever knows deep down inside or maybe really on the surface that what they're doing is wrong. And it's a problem. All the denial is, is like, I'm too afraid to get clean. So just like, I don't have a problem. So go away. And it's just like, okay, not that's the most logical thing, but that is a thing. And so I found that extraordinarily interesting.
0: Awesome. Interesting. Awesomely interesting.
1: Is it awesomely (laughs) interesting? The greatest part is this like after 11 Treatment centers like he did in Arcanon, and he's like, when I came here, I wanted to do like a like an honest, like, I want to get to the root of my issues and actually put the work in that's necessary. But there's another thing he, to get clean, because he said the other thing is that he could do other centers, and you can do minimal work necessary, not really get into anything, just get yourself spat out the other side, and then that's it. And You can just go on your merry way and do whatever. Right. Um, As long as you have a decent insurance policy, you're pretty much always guaranteed a bed somewhere. Exactly. And so...
0: Well, listen, we have an interview today, and i got to get him on the phone. His name is Tim Ryan. Okay. So today we're going to be talking to Tim Ryan. Tim is a noted author and public speaker. Drugs stole more than half of Tim Ryan's life, but since he's become sober, he's dedicated every waking minute since walking out of prison to dealing hope, To addicts and their families. By his own account, Tim Ryan shouldn't be here. But as he states, where there is life, there is hope. Known as the Hope Dealer, Tim is a successful entrepreneur, grateful recovering heroin addict and alcoholic, nationally ranked barefoot water skier, and truth-talking convicted felon. As a business leader in a high-tech industry, Tim made and lost millions. As the founder of a Man in Recovery Foundation and motivational speaker, Tim's mission is to help one addict at a time transform their lives from dope to hope. Tim has been a featured thought leader in numerous national media, including USA Today, Newsweek, and the Steve Harvey Show with Dr. Drew, plus dozens of nationally syndicated radio shows. He was an invited guest by the U.S. President to the 2016 State of the Union Address. Let's talk to Tim Ryan. So Tim, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate you sharing your story with us.
2: I am truly honored to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Okay. Now, typically the way um, I think that what our listeners are mostly interested in are the stories that we share on the podcast. And typically the way I started is to ask you, how did you get started in drugs or with drugs?
2: Wow, that is a, uh, that's a great question. You know, I was the When I grew up, I grew up in the northern suburbs of Illinois, and I graduated high school in 86. But if you take it back a little, I mean, drinking, everyone drank. And, heck, I can remember at 14 years old, my best friend was 18. We lived on a lake. We water skied together. And the drinking age was still 18 in Wisconsin. So as a freshman in high school, every weekend we were going up to Wisconsin drinking, but the drugs, I can remember at 15 years old, I was with two of my friends, Pat and Brian. We were at Jim Spielman's house, who's now dead from a cocaine overdose. There were some older kids, and they were all doing cocaine. And I was a kid that struggled with learning disabilities and self-esteem, and I kind of wore the mask. I was the class clown, but always wanted to hang out with the older kids. And they said, do you want to try some cocaine? And we each put in five bucks. Myself, Pat, Brian, and Joel, and we all split a quarter gram of cocaine. And I'll tell you that one line of cocaine was it. About 20 minutes later, Pat and Brian, were sleeping at uh, Pat's house and we're going home. I said, I'll be there in a little bit. And I went up to Brian's older brother, Joel, and I said, do you have any more? And he said, I have a half gram, I'll split it with you. You owe me 25 bucks on Friday. The first time I bought cocaine, I was having it fronted to me, and that was it, game on. I mean, my high school, academic school was not me. I got on the work program. The only thing I excelled at was water skiing from 14 to 21. I was one of the top-ranked barefoot water skiers in the country. I got on the work program. I ran pizza restaurants. But every Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, it was party. I mean, Monday I would be planning on where I'm getting my alcohol or my cocaine for the weekend. Yeah, started wow. out real quick.
0: At 15?
2: Yep, 15 years old, 15. And then, you know, I when I got out of high school at a 1.4 grade average, we took a test called the ACT of perfect scores, the 36. I took it five times and I received an 11 each time. You know, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. I had the opportunity to go down to college in Louisiana and I went down to Monroe, Louisiana for a few different reasons. A they had open admission. So if you pay the bill, you could go to college. They had the best intercollegiate water ski team in the country. So I wanted to get on the water ski team. Um, The drinking age was 18 and it was three to one girl to guide. So I figured Louisiana sounds like a great idea. I hopped on a plane, flew down there with my mom. As soon as she, Got off that, uh, got on the plane to fly back. I was at a liquor store and, you know, alcohol and drugs took over very quickly. Um, ecstasy was legal in the state of Texas in 1985. I went down in 86. There was a lot of quantities. We started running drugs between Dallas, Houston, Mississippi. Made a lot of money, but that allotted me the more time to do more cocaine, ecstasy, Got into a lot of hallucinogenics, Uh, but the story ends is I never got on the water ski team. You know, I started being told, Mr. Ryan, you're a liability. You don't show up to class. You don't show up to practice. Drugs and alcohol very quickly just took everything away from me. Mm -hmm. This was in Monroe, Monroe, Louisiana. We would go to Houston, Dallas, or Mississippi every other weekend and buy 5,000 hits of ecstasy and bring it back and sell it. But that allotted us the opportunity to get in because we're making a lot of money. It gave me the opportunity to buy more drugs, more cocaine. I did a lot of ecstasy. I got into a lot of hallucinogenics. I actually had a bumper sticker on the back of my 78 Ford Fairmont that said in search of the eternal buzz, you know, I was searching for happiness through drugs and alcohol when in hindsight, they caused all my problems. Wow. Yeah.
0: So you didn't make it on the the water ski team.
2: Didn't make it on the water ski team. My claim to fame is uh, I went to college with the Little Country Western singer, and when I do speaking events, um, his name was Tim McGraw, Oh,
1: and (laughs) I knew Tim.
2: Yeah, we we were acquaintances. We weren't friends. He was in the Pike fraternity, and I would see him play up at this bar, Enox, a cafe on Wednesday night, and... The thing was, Tim went by the name Tim Smith. He didn't want people knowing who his father was, and his father was Tug McGraw, a professional baseball player, but his father was also an alcoholic. So once Tim graduated college and went to Nashville, he took his name, Tim Tim McGraw. But what people don't realize is Tim McGraw is also an alcoholic, but he's been sober since 2008. And what that shows me was two different things. Due to the shame and guilt that his father was an alcoholic, He didn't want people knowing who his dad was. But on hindsight, his dad was an alcoholic. Tim became an alcoholic. So the disease of addiction is hereditary, and it gets passed down generation to generation.
0: Wow. Wow. Okay, so you're in college, and you're in Louisiana. I'm I'm
2: in college. I'm in Louisiana. (laughs) And you're dealing. I I, I think I stayed six semesters, and I eventually got kicked out. I came back to the Chicago area, did some odd jobs. Um, Again, hanging out with an older gentleman and uh, Roger was a cocaine hookup. I very quickly went from snorting cocaine to starting to smoke cocaine, freebasing cocaine. And uh, I can remember Roger and I would drive to the north side of Chicago every day, which was about an hour drive. We'd go to noon mass at this big Catholic church. We'd sit in the pew, we'd kneel down like we were praying, and a Colombian lady would hand us two ounces of cocaine. Um, This lady went to church every day of the week, but she was one of the biggest cocaine dealers in Chicago at the time. We'd drive back, we'd sell one ounce, and then we would smoke the other one, and my life got out of control very, very quickly, And at 21 years old, I checked myself into drug treatment. It was uh, January of 1990. In September, I turned 21. And here in January, I checked myself into a place in Northern Illinois called Parkside Lodge. When I went into treatment the first time, I went in with the thought pattern, I just wanna quit doing cocaine because I felt that cocaine was the issue and I wanted to figure out how to drink like a normal person. I like treatment, I went through the motions, and probably a couple days before I was getting out, this guy came in and spoke, he shared his story, and when he was done, he looked at all 38 of us, there were 38 clients, and he said, one of you will be sober in a year, and a third of you will be dead. And right away, I put up my hand, I said, excuse me, sir, there's 38 of us. He said, listen to me, kid, one of you will be sober in a year, and a third of you will be dead. And it scared me, and I said, what do I do? And he said, don't drink, get a sponsor work, the steps go to meetings. I'm like, all right, cool. And then my father sat me down. And I love my parents more than anything in the world. And my dad looked at me and he said, Tim, where did we go wrong as parents? And it still gets me emotional this day. And I said, Dad, you didn't do anything wrong. My parents adopted my older brother, me and my little brother and sister. Dan's two years older than me. They're He's 52, I'm 50, and Katie and Kevin just turned 48. They're three-quarter Chippewa Indian, and we were poor growing up, and a vacation was put the canoe on the van, go to Wisconsin, camp out for two nights, canoe down the river. My dad worked at the Chicago Board of Trade for a little company by the name of V.F. Hutton for 26 years. In 26 years, he never missed a day of work. He became senior vice president. He ran the whole country. My mom helped co found a company called Market Day, which became a, a multi billion dollar food co op. We had a good life. They took us on two vacations every year. We had dinner every night at six thirty. You know, family was everything. And I looked at my dad and I said, Dad, you didn't do anything wrong and he looked at me and he said, Well, Tim, why you got some help, your mother and I got some too and I'll jokingly say that cult called Al-Anon got to my mom and dad Hmm. because these famous words came out of my dad's mouth. He said, Tim, I learned that I didn't cause your disease. I can't cure it and I can't control it. And he said, I'm not going to contribute to it either. And I said, so what's this mean, dad? And he said, you're welcome to come home. But the day you start drinking or doing drugs and not doing recovery, don't let the door hit you where God splits you. So I came back. I started going to the Chris Lake Alano Club. I'd go to four or five meetings a day. I started an asphalt seal coating business. I had about eight of my buddies working for me. Me and another buddy started a barefoot water ski school. Life was good, but I'm the guy that would go to meetings and think I could get sober through osmosis. I didn't need a sponsor. I didn't need to work the steps. I thought I could just hang out with sober people, and I wanted to save all my friends. About eight months later, I was uh, competing in barefoot water skiing that summer. I won Illinois State. I won Michigan State. I won Wisconsin State. I was one of the top contenders for the U.S. Nationals that year. And at the Midwest Regionals, I fell in a trick run and I blew out three discs in my lower back, and my career was over instantly. And then I was introduced to a wonderful drug called Vicodin. Here, t- take 300 of these a month, you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. I didn't like the pills, so I went back to smoking weed. Two days after smoking weed, I went back to drinking very quickly with the drinking. I went back to cocaine very quickly. My seal coating business was not a business. My partner with the water ski school, I heard those famous words again. He said, Tim, you're a liability. I'm taking the ski school to Florida, but you're not coming with. And there I am in my apartment with no running water, no electricity, with myself, by myself, crying to myself, saying, I can't stop. Got a knock on the door. You're evicted. Um, and I, I had a buddy of mine reach out to me in Austin, Texas, and he said, TR, why don't you come on down here? I'll help get you sober. And my buddy had just graduated uh, University of Texas and bought a little house. So I packed up and I moved down to Austin uh, again. My MO was always go back to meetings so I went to meetings for about three, four weeks and I wanted to get high and I flipped on the news and saw someone was shot on 13th street. Uh, so I got on my motorcycle. I went to 13th street cause I know if they're shooting people, they're selling drugs and bought some cocaine and very quickly went back into doing cocaine, pulled some credit card fraud on my friend. He found out he had me arrested. I got to spend 30 days in the Travis County jail and Being a white guy on an all-black deck did not go too well, especially being from Chicago in the heart of Texas. Um, I got out back to meetings, and I met some guys that were marketing cable television door-to-door that were all sober. So I started working with them in Austin. A couple months later, we had the opportunity to go to Michigan, so I hightailed it out of Texas. I think I had a warrant out for 20 years. Um, I did finally clear that up. Um, and I, I spent a year with these guys. We're in Michigan, we're in Buffalo, New York. We're in West Virginia. We're in Colorado. We're in California, down to Florida, making good money, selling cable television. And, uh, I had the opportunity to go to Buffalo, New York and start my own company a year later. So I show up in Buffalo, actually Williamsville, New York, and a gentleman that had worked for me the year prior I had met his ex-wife. I had to bring Christmas presents over to their house. So I called her. I said, I'm in town. She said, well, why don't you come on over? We'll have dinner. Now I'm away from all my sober friends. I show up with the bottle of Captain Morgan, and I never left. Wow. That lasted about two, two and a half years. The one thing I had in life was work ethic. I worked very hard. So I started this marketing company Within six months, I am, I'm 22 years old. I have 60 people working for me nationwide. I have the third largest door to door sales company, and I'm making about $25,000 a week free and clear. I made my first million at 22. I lost it by 23 because I went right back to doing cocaine. Um, you know, these 60 families were out of work. I was in a very dysfunctional relationship again. I lose everything, I pack up, I come back to Chicago, I owe the IRS 80,000, I'm a half million in debt, and I go back to meetings. And I had stumbled into, it's kind of a crazy story, I see this ad in the newspaper, double your income. So I go apply for this job, and the guy has me interviewing in his house, and I walk down in his basement, he's got two debts set up, and he's wearing a suit, and I'm like, who the hell? wears the suit to go to work in their own <laughs> house but i'll go with it yeah and and i i see a book on his desk called a new pair of glasses now i remember that's wrote by chuck c it's, it's a recovery related book so i know this guy's in recovery so he's telling me what he does and he's a data processing recruiter and i can make all this money and i say hey this is great i'll take the job and he said i'm not how didn't say i'm hiring you and i said bob are you in recovery he said, yeah, I'm seven years sober. Why are you? And I said, yeah, I saw the book by Chuck C. I said, yeah, I'm two years sober. He said, you're hired. I wasn't two days sober, but oh. I could talk the talk and I could walk the walk. <laughs> you know, rarely is a person failed, thoroughly followed this. I could quote the big book of Alcox Anonymous like the back of my hand, but I had no concept of what live and recovery was. So Bob hires me. I'm making three, four hundred cold calls a day. Now I went from making twenty-five thousand a week to a three hundred dollar a week draw. And on my twenty eighth day I made my first placement and I made nine grand. And I'm like, you know what? I can do this. Four months later I made fifty thousand. I'm like, bam, I'm in, I'm gonna learn this recruiting business. But again, I quit going to meetings, I start drinking, I start doing cocaine. Bob found out, but he didn't care because if I made 40 grand, he made 40 grand. I made 50. He made 50. He made half of all the commissions. And one of our clients called a management consulting firm in Chicago and they were looking for a recruiter. So I quit working for Bob and I said, Bob, I'm quitting. I'm done doing this. And I went by my house and I sat by my home phone because I knew exactly what Bob would do. And Bob calls me two hours later. Well, what are you going to do? And I said, I think I'm going to take this job as a contract recruiter. I get paid out hourly. And he said, hey, you know, this consulting firm, Pete, they're, they're looking for a recruiter. Would you go talk to him? I said, no, I'm not interested. He said, Tim, please do it. So I said, all right, set up the interview. And I'm hanging up the phone. I'm like, yes, it works. So I go down, I interview, they hire me on the spot. They pay me. And when I talk about money, I'm not talking about money to brag. The point I'm trying to make is, Making money can be very easy. Saving it and managing it, now that's a whole different concept. And one of my character defects and faults in life was I could make money, but I never knew how to save it. I lived for today, I lived for the moment. I never planned for the future and I didn't care if I lived or died. I was there to have fun and enjoy the ride. So I take this job, they pay me a forty five thousand base salary, and I think I'm getting three or five thousand commission for every person I hire. And now I'm in the corporate world. I've got to wear a I had to borrow fifteen hundred dollars from my dad for my sign on bonus to come in so I could go buy five suits. I had to wear suits to work in. If my boss was in the office at six thirty, I was in at six. If he left at seven at night, I left at seven thirty. I was always in before the boss and I never left till he left. Well, they wanted me to hire two to three people a month. Very quickly, I was hiring 20 to 30 people a month. Wow. And they said, Yeah, I I, I worked very hard. I I figured it out. I surrounded myself with people I could learn from. And very quickly, they promoted me to uh, basically a partner in the company. And I was making a guaranteed quarter million a year plus commission. I've You know, got a brand new Harley, I've got a brand new custom ski boat, I got a pearl white Jeep. Um, I could interview everyone at the Bennigan's restaurant so I could drink all day. I'd have some cocaine delivered, but every night I'm at my townhouse with myself, by myself, crying to myself, saying I can't stop. I have all these materialistic things that make me feel good, boat, Harley, Jeep. I've got money in my pocket and I am the loneliest person in the world because I could never put my hand up and ask for
0: help. Wow. Just a reminder that you are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Please give us a good review wherever you listen to your podcasts, be it iTunes, Spotify, or any other app and say that you like our podcast and be sure and subscribe. If you'd like further information on the podcast, or you'd like to reach out to us, our email address is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com. You can visit our Facebook page by the same name. And now we have a website. The website is theaddictionpodcast.com. That's theaddictionpodcast.com. If you'd like further information on Narcanon on Suncoast, that number is 1-877-339-3324. Do you have a loved one struggling with drug addiction and you've tried everything to help them and failed? Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years' experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1 866 989 4499 today and say podcast for a 10% discount. Or, Go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. Do it today.
2: So I walked into the office and there's a lady sitting in a peach outfit and me and my smart mouth. I walked in, I said, Hey, peachy, how you doing? And She said, good. And I said, who are you? And she said, I'm Shannon, the new receptionist. Who are you? And I popped up my chest and said, well, I'm Tim Ryan, the director of recruiting. And she said, oh, you're the jerk that didn't want to hire me. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, weren't you given my resume about a month ago by Bill Hennessy? I said, yeah. She said, weren't you looking to hire a personal assistant? I said, are you the banker lady? She said, yeah. I said, I don't like bankers. I never bothered to call you in for an interview. My mistake. I'll take you out for a drink. So a couple weeks later, I took Shannon down to Bennigan's with another recruiter, Vic, and she had two beers and got up and went to the bathroom. And Vic says, God, she's really cute. I'm asking her out. I said, no, you're not. I got this one in the bag. And I walked over. I waited for her to come out of the bathroom. She came out. I gave her a kiss. I kind of started her and I said, you're my new girlfriend. And she said, i like that, but I have one question to ask you. And I said, what's that? She said, do you do drugs? I said, absolutely not. Why would you ask me a silly question like that? She said, well, I have a three-year-old son by the name of Nicholas, who is a father that's an alcoholic and drug addict who abandoned him at birth. And I want nothing to do with anyone that does drugs. I said, I don't do drugs. She said, great. We'll go on another date. She went home to Naperville. I went to Chicago and bought a quarter ounce cocaine because everything that came out of my mouth was a lie. We started hanging out every night after work. Every weekend, we're on the boat. I cut back on the cocaine. We were drinking. I'd get drunk, but it was acceptable. And about five months in, she tells me she's pregnant. So I did the right thing. I dragged her down to the courthouse. I married her. I adopted Nick. And and then my son, Max, came along and... Nine months after Max was born, well, she was pregnant with Tanner, and Tanner came along. And, well, nine months after Tanner was born, she was pregnant with Abby, and Abby came along. You know, good Irish Catholic here. <laughs> but what, what, <laughs> well, all kidding aside, you know, we're living in a, a beautiful townhouse in downtown Naperville. I have now quit that company because I thought I knew everything, went to another one. I'm making a third of what I was at the other company. She had to go on maternity leave. We have Max. Nick is uh, five. Max is 14 months old, and she's pregnant with Tanner. And Shannon realizes she's living with a full-blown alcoholic and drug addict. And I had been up on a cocaine bender. I'd passed out, must have woke up in the morning. And when I woke up, my 14-month-old son, Max, was up in our loft crawling towards my home office. So I picked Max up and I put him in his bedroom and I went and pushed open my office door and there was cocaine all over the floor. Scared the hell out of me because he could have pushed that door open and put one of those rocks in his mouth. that would have killed him. Oh so God. immediately, yeah, immediately I'm back to the 12 step base program and I, I plugged in, I got a sponsor. I think I worked step one, two, and three. I started another business with my old boss. My neighbor and I were, Cub Scout Pack Masters. we're running 35 Cub Scout dens, life was really good. We're building a beautiful five bedroom, three car garage, quarter acre lot out in the suburbs house. And I, I was happier than I've ever been. And I was about 14 months clean and I met a guy, Joel, Joel and I knew some of the same people. We started hanging out and about a month later, he asked me to take him to Chicago to move out of his apartment. And I said, sure. So as I take Joel down, we're moving him out and out of the bedroom as roommate, Saba Pops. He's like, what are you doing here? I said, I'm moving out your roommate, Joel. What are you doing? He said, I'm doing heroin. You want to do some? Yeah, okay, fine. I'm 14 months sober. I have no program, no foundation. My foundation is made out of straw and pebbles and broken sticks. What's one bag of heroin going to do? And that was it. That one bag of heroin was what I thought I was searching for my entire life. That one bag of heroin ultimately turned into a $500 a day habit for 12 years. I jokingly will say, I wish I was just an alcoholic. That would have been easy compared to what heroin addiction did to me.
0: Well, and, and
2: it's not, they're both, they're both horrific. Um, I hid the heroin from my wife for about a year. I snorted it. Um, And when you're, I got hooked up with this guy, Ray Roland, who I can use his name because he's dead too. But Ray was third highest in command with the maniac Latin disciple street gang in Chicago. I started dealing with Ray. And when your drug dealer says, Hey, Timmy, get in the car. We drive. About uh, two miles to downtown Chicago and he said, You see that building and that red door? I said, Yeah, he said, Walk through it. I said, What is this? He said, That's the methadone clinic. He said, Tim, I really like you a lot. I'm a drug dealer, I'm a gang member, I run this gang, but you're not gonna die on my watch. You need help. You're buying way too much heroin. And I walked into the methadone clinic and uh, said, Hey, I'm a heroin addict. I sorted a bunch of heroin and, and got on methadone and called my wife and said, honey, I'm I'm cured. I I know you think something's been wrong with me, but I've been doing heroin. And then she started putting two and two together. Why was I getting sick every three or four weeks? And then I'm miraculously better. And she's searching the internet trying to find out what's wrong. So I got on methadone, got up to about 80 milligrams, got really angry on it. My wife said, you got to get off. I called Ray. I said, how do I get off? He said, you start doing heroin again. So I went back to doing heroin. I went, (laughs) Started injecting heroin. Um, I always had my own businesses. I ran some executive search firms. So I could make money, but I could hide out, and people never knew. But what happened is I started to get consequences. I got my second DUI. I lost my license for three years. I didn't drive. Um, Two weeks before I used to get my license back, I drove one time. And I got a driving on revoke. So now I'm going to lose my license for two more years. Well, I got a case of the I don't cares. And I kept driving. And two weeks later, I got pulled over in Chicago by Officer White. Now, I was a slick drug addict because I would wear a suit and carry AA literature with me. And because I'm in a bad part of town and Officer White pulls me over. What are you doing? I said, look, I I work for Alks Anonymous. I'm on a 12-step base call. And he looks at me, he goes, you idiot. Nobody works for Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a volunteer program. You're going to buy heroin. I said, no, I'm not. Yeah. Um, I think the guy was sober. I I really do. So he wrote me two tickets and he said, said, Mr. Ryan, I'm going to give you two bits of advice and I suggest you take both of them. He said, A, you better quit driving your car because they're going to put you in prison. He said, B, you ought to go get some help for your heroin habit because I know you got one. And he let me go. For that, I had to do 30 days in Cook County Jail. Six months later, I get pulled over in Plainfield, Illinois. I do 30 days in Will County Jail. Two months later, I get pulled over in Chicago again in a different car in a different part of town by who?
0: Officer White. Officer White. Oh, no.
2: (laughs) Officer White. Yeah. You know, there, there's three and a half million people in Chicago. The chances of getting pulled over by the same cop twice, eight months apart, are slim to none. Yeah, And it happened. And he, he remembered me. And he said, you look familiar. I said, Officer White, you got me eight months ago. And he said, damn it, I told you to quit driving. And I think he was going to let me go. And he came back to the car. He said, Tim, I got to ask you to step out. He said, this is your fourth driving on a revoke. This is a felony. And I can remember getting to the, the police station in Chicago and him letting me use my cell phone so I could call my wife and say, Shannon, the van is on um, Austin Avenue at this block. I got arrested again. And her and my 75-year-old mother-in-law having to go down for two hours trying to find the van. You know, that's what my addiction did. it. Wow. I, could, I could handle being an addict, but it affected my kids and everybody else. Right. That got me my that got me my first year in prison. I was sentenced to a year in prison on January 25th of 2008 on my wife's birthday. Happy birthday, honey. I'm going to prison. Uh... So I could either. Yeah, I could either do six months in Cook County day for day or take a year in prison. You become a felon, but you really do 61 days and they release you. I said, good, I'm a felon. Let's go. So I did 61 days and I got out and I came back and all I did in prison was read books, eat commissary, get a tan. I was in Southern Illinois and had a key to my own cell. It was kind of a vacation. Um, I remember getting home and my wife sat me down and she said, Tim, while you were incarcerated, I applied for a scholarship to go to nursing school and I was selected number one. I got a full ride. And I said, you don't need to work. I make plenty of money. And she said, Tim, the way you're living, you're going to end up in two places. You're going to end up dead or back in prison. And we got four kids to take care of. Now, in the interim, I've probably OD'd two, three, four times. Um, and she was right. You know, I went and started another executive search firm. The market was hot. And I made four or five hundred grand that year. I had an office in the Wrigley building, downtown Chicago. And I went right back to doing heroin and drinking like I never stopped. Um, this went on till December 16th of 2010 when I drove one more time. Uh, I snuck the van out. Shannon was taking a shower. I can remember her calling me, what are you doing? And, oh, I got to go get Ariel out of jail. All, everything was a lie. And she said, Tim, we'll get you the help. And I just hung up the phone. I got to my drug dealers. Ray is now dead because his wife died from an OD. So he committed suicide. I'm dealing with his cousin, Flacco. And Flacco's got a kilo of heroin sitting in front of me. And he says, Tim, be careful. This is strong. It's a pure batch. So I started a little bit, bought what I bought, and I drove away. And my thinking is, well, if it's that good, I better pull over and shoot some up. So I pulled into a McDonald's. I shot up a bunch of heroin, put my spoon and syringe away. I sat there and said, well, I'm not dead. So I started driving. And the next thing I remember, I'm being wheeled on a gurney into West Suburban Hospital with the Chicago cop telling me I just killed two people. I had overdose while driving and hid two cars. Oh, no. Um, so for five... Yeah, so for five hours, I've got this Chicago cop, you junkie, you blankety-blank, you killed these people, you're going to prison for the rest of your life. As I got clarity, the nurse came in and said, we got to get blood and urine. And she walked out, and I'm thinking, I'll get out of this. They didn't find anything. There's no, they don't get blood or urine, I'll beat it. So I looked at the cop, I said, let's go, I don't have insurance, go book me. So he was happy to take me out. I sat in Cook County Jail for a week, manipulated my mom into putting up the bail money. My wife shows up at two in the morning to pick me up. We drive home, not a word said. We pull into our garage, we walk into my home office, and those famous words come out of my mouth I'm sorry. And Shannon looked at me, she said, Tim, your sorries are done with. She said, We'll talk in the morning. I'm going to bed. And I looked at her, and I said, do you know where my glasses are? Because when I hit these cars, oh, and the point is, I didn't kill anyone. I did put four people in the hospital, um, but I didn't kill anyone. The cop was telling me that because his brother had died from an overdose a year prior, and he was kind of jaded towards heroin addicts. But still, you know, you put four people in the hospital. You don't remember it. It took five shots of Narcan to bring me back. Without Narcan, I'd be dead. So... You know, it was a big reality check. And Shannon said, you know, I went to the van. Your glasses are on the table. Your coat's in the closet. And we'll talk in the morning. She went to bed. I went and grabbed my glasses. I went to the closet. I got my coat. I opened my coat pocket. There was all the heroin the cops never found. And I went right back to shooting dope. Oh, wow. Because that's what drug addicts do. And, you know, I got to a point where I wanted to die. I wanted to kill myself. But I was too much of a, a, a... wimp to put a gun in my mouth, but if I was raised Catholic, if there is heaven, hell purgatory, I don't want to rot there. So I just justified I'd go back to doing heroin. Well now everyone knows I'm a heroin addict. It's in the newspapers. I went and retained the best lawyer. I slapped down a bunch of money and I said, Let's beat this. They never got blood or urine. That's how delusional my thinking was. <laughs> and my lawyer looks at me and says, Tim, this is your third DUI he said, this is your fifth driving on the revoke They found the spoon and syringe. He said, you're not beating anything. He said, you're going back to prison. It's just a matter of how long and I'll do the best I can. So I fought my case for 21 months, about three months into fighting my case. I'm profusely dope sick when you don't have opiates. It's like having the flu times a thousand. You're hot. You're cold. So I'm taking a hot bath and my 17-year-old son, Nick, walks in the bathroom. Nick was the son I adopted. I raised since he was three. I was adopted. He, he's like my own son. But with Nick, I was not a father. I was a friend. I was the dad that let Nick and his buddies smoke weed, and drink beer in the basement. I was the cool dad. But in my own ra- irrational thinking, well, if he does it here, I know he's not going to get into anything else. And Nick comes in the bathroom. He says, what's wrong, Pops? And I said, What are you, idiot? I'm dope sick. You know, you know what's wrong with me. And he said, Not anymore, Dad. Today's your lucky day. And my son threw two bags of heroin on the counter. So I got out of the tub and I did them. And my sick was taken away instantly. And I walked to my son's room and I said, Nick, what the hell are you doing? And he said, Don't worry, Dad. I'm just selling a little bit. I said, Nick, you need to shut this down immediately. This isn't weed. This is heroin. And you know what this drug has done to me. And my son looks me dead in the eyes and he says, well, dad, you're a successful drug addict. And I said, why the hell would you say that? He said, well, look at us. We've got a nice house. You got an office in the Wrigley building. You make a good living. See a Nick's delusional mind because I functioned and worked. He thought I was successful. Wow. Uh, three months later, three months later I caught Nick doing heroin and we started using heroin together. That's how my son and I bonded was getting high together every day, doing drug runs together every day. That's where the disease of addiction takes you. That's where that one drink that led to the cocaine, to the ecstasy, to the bag of heroin. That's where this took me because I could never get out of my own way. I mean, and it's hard for people to wrap their head around, but that is how my son and I bonded. That's how we spent quality time together was getting high, manipulating his mother, in living in our diseases of addiction. And then October 30th of 2012, I was sentenced to seven years in the Illinois department of corrections. When I walked into prison the second time, I'm six foot one, 200 pounds right now. I weighed 158 pounds. I skin and bone I walk walking death. I defecated and vomited myself for two weeks in the cell. I looked up and I said, God, I'm done. I said, please take away this obsession and compulsion to use. And I swear I will turn my will and life over to you. And please let me get into Sheridan Prison. In Illinois, there's 28 prisons. There's two with therapeutic drug treatment programs. And the next day I was transferred to Sheridan Prison. Um, the Illinois Department of Corrections, the Westcare Drug Treatment Program and Sheridan Prison saved my life. I needed to go to prison. I needed to be sat down. I needed to lose everything. I left my wife with a, my oldest son in active addiction, a house in active foreclosure, not a dollar in, in the bank account. Wow. Um, Shannon, came, yeah, Shannon still came to visit me every two weeks. We lost the house in foreclosure while I was incarcerated. She had to move everything out, put it in storage, move twenty miles away. My kids uh, all moved into grandma's house. My three boys lived in the basement. Abby and My daughter and her mother shared a bedroom. Nick was an active addiction, all because of me, because I'm the guy that couldn't put my damn hand up and ask for help. Now my family's affected. But in prison, I couldn't do anything about it. So I had two choices, go through the motions or plug into recovery. 18 hours a day in that cell. My cellmate and I studied the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the N.A. Basic Text, the Bible. I read probably 300 books on business, business, cosmic healing, karmic energy. You name it, I did it. We did group three hours a day, five days a week. We'd sit in the day room at night, and have a meeting. All I did was recovery. I never got a TV. I wasn't there to do push-ups for noodles. I was there to change. Um, on Father's Day of 2013, I called my wife to see if she's coming to visit. She said yes, but I need to let you know I sent you a package. I said, cool. What would you send me? Some magazines. She said, I sent you divorce papers. I can't do it anymore. So after 18 years together, 16 years of marriage, my wife divorced me in prison. My worst fear in prison was my son was going to die from an overdose, naked overdose two more times, was in treatment two more times while I was locked out, locked up. I ended up doing 13 and a half months. I caught my case December 16th of 2010. I walked out of prison December 16th of 2013. Three years to the day I caught the case, I walked out. I did 13 and a half months. For the first time in my life, I was 13 and a half months clean and sober. Shannon, my former wife, picked me up, took me to downtown Naperville. She had a townhouse her and my mom had rented. All my furniture from our home was moved in. My four kids came over for dinner that night. And we had Portillo's hot dogs and Italian beefs. And that's the last time I was together with my former wife and four kids as a family. Uh, As soon as my parole agent showed up, I I went to another meeting, got another sponsor for two and a half years. I never missed a meeting, went through the steps again. Um, I did that in prison. I started some family support groups. I went back into the technology space for three months and said, I'm done called my mom, borrowed $15,000 and, uh, set up a nonprofit called a Manor recovery foundation. My motto is we take people from dope to hope, help one addict at a time. We've assisted over 5,000 people into treatment in the past five years, 95% have no insurance or resources. I stumbled into working in the treatment space at, uh, 19 months sober, my son, Nick was in treatment for the sixth time. He's now 20 years old. I went to meet with Nick and he said, dad, you know, we got such a crazy story. Father, son, we used to get high together. He's like, you know, I want to work with you. I want to do what you're doing. He said, think of me and you a father and son team speaking in high schools. And I said, Nick, I love it, but you got to get sober. He said, don't worry, dad, I will. 30 days out of treatment, Nick was back in Cook County Jail. Uh, He did 45 days in jail. He got out. Um, His mom picked him up and said, we're done. You're not coming to my house. You're not coming to Dad's. All you do is lie, cheat, and steal. Oh, don't worry. My girlfriend and I are getting an apartment. Five days out of jail, I called Nick and said, come to my house and get some Narcan. He said, don't worry, Dad. I'm not on that BS anymore, and I believed him. And two days later, August 1st, uh, 2014, uh, Shannon called me at 6 in the morning and said, get out of bed, Nick overdosed. She picked me up. We shot to the hospital, ran into the emergency room. Tim and Shannon Ryan here to see our son, Nicky overdosed. And 30 seconds later, the chaplain walked out. Aww. And I knew my son was dead. Yeah, I knew my son was dead. And I'll ask people what was my next thought. And they will say, you want to get high. I'll say, no, my next thought was I'll be at 6 o'clock, 12-step base meeting that night. My son passed away on my 21-month sobriety date. Uh-huh. um in Nick's passing he really solidified what I do today and uh I just uh lost one of Nick's friends yesterday her brother died six months ago from an overdose since my son has passed I've been to over 150 funerals I've buried over 30 of his friends I've assisted over 50 of them into treatment this disease does not discriminate um I started dating a gal out of prison who was you know going through a divorce newly sober next thing she tells me she's pregnant. I'm like, you have gotta be crapping me here. You know, so all of a sudden I've got another daughter. Today I have a almost four year old daughter by the name of Mackenzie who uh wow is my my entire world. You know, God called one of my kids home and blessed me with another one and my daughter's never seen her dad drink or use drugs. Um, <clears throat> I, my 18-year-old daughter's on a partial scholarship to Lynn University in Boca Raton, Florida. My 19-year-old uh, just completed welding school. My 21-year-old worked with me for three years. He's now out in Colorado recording uh, his first album with his band. And, you know, I get to be a father today. I get to be um, a partner in life, a son in six months ago, God blessed me with another angel by the name of Jennifer Jimenez, who came into my life, who is now my fiance. And Jennifer's uh, 13 and a half years sober. She's a supermodel, a celebrity, has got a hell of a story. And we now speak all over the country together uh, through two tour to four speakers. You can check us out at timandjen.org. Um, <laughs> we still have our you like that shameless plug, don't you? No, no, no. It's uh, totally okay. Have, I always <laughs> ask for the plugs. Yeah. I always do. <laughs> no, we still uh, have our foundation, and Jennifer and I are in the midst of uh, opening a detox and inpatient residential treatment program out here in Los Angeles, California, right now. So the life I have today, you know, a little over six and a half years sober, is a life that I could never, ever imagine you know we just got back from a, a one o'clock meeting at the comedy store where Jennifer got to speak and we're we're going to another meeting tonight and, and my whole life is recovery and giving back and getting out of my own way and surrounding myself with people that are smarter than me and uh, you know I did some cool things I was a guest of the 2016 State of the Union address I Had a documentary two years ago on A and E called Dope Man. It's a day in the life of what I do. You can watch it on Amazon Prime for five ninety five. I don't make (laughs) a dollar. I wrote a book. uh, I wrote a book called Tim Ryan from Dope to Hope. You can purchase that on Amazon. Do buy that because I make six dollars on that. Um, Even in my book, it's raw. It's real. and and it offers a lot of hope and I'll still get messages today. Hey Tim, I read your book in prison or my mom bought it or parents that have read it that understand now why their kids do what they do. And what I'm trying to do is, is let people know it's okay to put your hand up and ask for help. Whether you're struggling with substance abuse, mental health, just life in general, society today has turned into this. Everything's in an iPhone, instant gratification, you know, what about sitting down and having dinner without cell phones around and, and being responsible and working hard and giving back and helping others. And uh, I see where things are going and I'm sick of burying people, I'm sick of people giving up and, and I want the the stigma of addiction dropped. I can promise you, and I'll end with this, when I grew up, I wanted to be a professional water skier and a stunt man. I never in a million years wanted to be an alcoholic or a drug addict. But where the journey has taken me today, I could not ever have this life I had without having to go through the trials and tribulations I did. And that's my story, and I'm sticking
0: to it. Well, it's an unbelievable story, and I I thank you for sharing it with us. Jason?
1: I, I mean, uh, <laughs> it's, like I got, it's almost like I got nothing. Um <laughs> It It's interesting because that's a. I hate to say any stories typical, but it's not typical, but it's a very. A lot of addicts share similar stories in the regard of you get high the first time and you found the thing that hantered all your problems. You went through a whole range of things, but when you get sober, you can never have imagined your life having not gone through that because of the life you get afterwards.
2: Yeah, you know, what was really interesting after after my son, Nick passed away, Shannon, and his mom, were. it was two weeks after Nick passed and we're sitting down and having lunch. And she had said something profound to me. I, I said, do you blame me for Nick dying? And she said, I've got resentment towards you, but no, I don't blame you. She said, Tim, you went through all your, she said, I truly believe you went through all your trials and tribulations. God put Nick and I in your life for a reason. You went through your struggles. Nick went through his. For Nick to pass on to set the stage for what you're going to do next. And she said, please don't ever stop what you're doing. And it, it gets me emotional, but I had to go through all this to have the platform I have today. And I use my voice to to help the voiceless, to educate parents, to help parents, God forbid, if they've lost a loved one. I've been there I can guide you through this. I just had a a kid three weeks ago message me, and I had helped him a couple of years prior, and he said, hey, I'm looking for a sober home in California. I know you're out here. And I said, here, call my buddy. He's got a couple really good places. Well, Trevor never called, and I found out two days later they found him dead in a hotel room. So I consoled the mom and three days ago, the mom puts a picture on Facebook and says, Hey, you know, my son's home, we have his ashes. And she messages me and she says, Tim, I want to get involved. What do I do? I'm I'm ready to help people with the with addiction issues and in depression and this. And I said, do you want my truth? And she said, yes. I said, I want you to grieve the loss of your son for the next six to 12 months. I want you to do absolutely nothing. And I want you to go through this grieving process. Call me in six to 12 months and let me know if this is what you really want to do, because I deal with so many families that lose a loved one. They want to get involved in the crisis right away, but then they never grieve the loss of their husband, wife, brother, sister, child, and they live through the day that person died. Mm -hmm. And I celebrate, I celebrate my son's life. And, you know, yeah, on, on August 1st, it'll be a tough day, but I cherish the 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 years i had with nicholas he was outgoing he he was going down half pipe got hit by a car skateboarding at six by nine he's dropping in on half pipes at nine i taught him to barefoot water ski we also had a lot of fun together but i cherish his life i don't live through the day that god called him home simple as that
0: right that's good advice that's very good advice yeah Tim, thank you so much, not only for sharing your story with us, but also for everything you're doing to, you know, take responsibility for, you know, this whole situation and for, you know, for people who are going through it and people who are suffering. I think it's huge what you're doing in the area.
2: Yeah, it has to. And I couldn't imagine doing anything else. And I'm truly blessed that i have the opportunity to do this and and help people and try to just guide and direct i can't rescue anyone but i can give you the tools and i can give you the suggestions and and that's what i do today and i'm truly honored and blessed that you gave me uh 45 minutes or an hour of your time to share my message. And if it helps one person, that's all that matters. That's what it's all about. And I thank you too for doing what you're doing.
0: And I know it will help. Thank you so much, Tim.
2: Thank you guys and have a wonderful, wonderful day.
0: You as well. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed Tim's story. Jason and I definitely found it riveting and emotional and tragic. And now he is really taking responsibility and doing his part to help end this scourge of addiction. Once again, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five star rating. We'll be back again next week with another